Bill Gates wrote a memo called Content is King, and folks should read that memo if you haven't read that memo. It still holds true. To engage anyone online in any sort of technological way, whether it's a website, whether it's a desktop app, whether it's a mobile app, you need to engage the user, right? And the way to engage the user is content, right? The way you can, like this podcast being a case in point, like we're creating something that engages an audience to spend those very crucial eyeballs with us or uh, audio balls with us, whatever you want to call it, eardrums with us for an hour, right? 30 minutes. That is one key aspect of who will be successful and differentiate or not. Like, can you engage someone? Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live Arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Devang Thakkar is the global head of Christie's Ventures, a new early-stage technology investment fund launched this summer. In this podcast, Devang will talk about Christie's Ventures' investment thesis. He will also discuss his view on the future roles technology can play in the art market. Coinciding with the launch of Christie's Ventures, Devang also organized Christie's Art and Tech Summit at the Auction House's Rockefeller Center headquarters. The conference will be an annual event with the potential for more additions around the world. Devang's first experience in the art world was as VP of Consumer Marketplace at Artsy. Before that, he spent more than a decade as a product leader at Microsoft in Seattle, where he contributed to the development of major operating systems from Windows XP to Windows 10 and product lines such as Bing, MSN, and Microsoft Teams. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Devang Thakkar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Marian. Nice to see you again. Devang, you announced in July that you are leading a fund for Christie's called Christie's Venture Fund. And I was hoping we could start with you just giving everyone a description of what this fund is, how it works, and what the goals are. Of course. No, thank you for having me again, man. It's good to see you again. And the goal for us is, is quite quite simple, actually. I think Christie's has always sort of tried to adopt technology or stay in the forefront of technology, whether it be around bidding, whether it be around online auctions. I think specifically in the last two years, all of us, because of the pandemic, but very specifically our business, had to fast track our digital transformation, right? I and mean, there's a quote from my prior boss at Microsoft, Satya, that stands out to me, which is, a lot of companies saw three years with the digital transformation in the first three months of the pandemic. And I think Christie's is no different. We've seen that same push only because we had no other way to reach our clients. We had to be sort of digitally savvy, connect with our clients through the online means. And again, you've heard this in every podcast. What dawned on us is we can wait for the next pandemic to force us to do this again, or we can be active participants in the technological advances rather than wait for technology to happen for us to then adopt it, right? Because you and I have always said, like, when is the art market going to adopt technology? When is the art market going to adopt digital? I don't think it's it's that cut and dry, right? It is, can we actively participate in making that technology fit the art market? And the ventures is a direct result of, of that, that need, right? Like, can we 
actively participate in the build out of technology in a way that allows us to shape it to our needs. So that's how the venture fund came about being like, let's actively manage how technology builds for the art market. So this is focusing fairly early stage then, right? You want to get in at the beginning of people who are organizing the right group of technologists and people who understand either a, a problem uh, related to crypto or blockchain or a problem that relates to the art market and get them up and running enough so that they can, you know, get more funding and grow. Absolutely. I think the the venture ecosystem in the late stage capital is quite well set up. I think there are growth funds, the big names that you hear every day, and recent Horowitz and Sequoia, they can deploy major capital once the idea is a hit, right? But for the art market, for the product idea to work, we have to shape it from the very early stages. So we are gonna invest in early stage companies so we can help shape both using our expertise as well as the the brand that we carry with us in that in that relationship and i think the the if i take a step back and like talk about the the areas of the fund i think that'll give folks a better picture of what we're looking at i think web3 you mentioned sort of crypto that's one third of maybe our our our, our fund and that's where some of the ideas uh, originated because after Beepo, we just had a front row seat into what are the uh, innovations that are being brought to the market. Right, and Depot was a seminal moment in sort of digital art history, and being on the cover of sort of Wall Street Journal after that sale gave a lot of people a view into Christie's. Like, hey, Christie's is now taking this quite seriously. So let me present my idea to Christie's. So we had a range of founders coming to us over the last two years saying, hey, look, this is something I'm building. Are you interested? We didn't have a vehicle for it because we didn't have ventures until now. And so we had to say thanks, would like love to stay connected, but we can't do anything other than sort of supporting you and cheering you on from the sideline. So that Web3 part of the portfolio is a result of that front row seat post people. The two other pillars of the fund outside of Web3, one is around the financial innovation that has been happening in the market for the last 20, 30 years, not just in the art market, but the fintech evolution in sort of real estate or in in owning assets in the sphere outside of art, some of those innovations will eventually make its way to the art market. Why would we wait for that to happen? Why wouldn't we sort of fast track that by being an active participant in that in that model, right? Then the third pillar of the of the fund is around sort of technology that makes it easier to consume art, whether it's digital uh, technology, it's hardware, allows to consume art as a sitting in South Africa, in, in Australia, not have the same access today that a consumer sitting in New York does, right? So I want to make sure that people who have uh, the, the want to access art have the means to access art through technology. So those three pillars, Web3, financial innovation, and technology that makes it seamless to consume art are where our focus is as a fund. So you mentioned Satya Nadella earlier, and clearly you worked at Microsoft. It leads me to wonder, how does a guy who works and, and lives in Seattle still, but, you know, worked at Microsoft, end up running a venture fund for a fancy Anglo-French company like uh, Christie's? I, I think, the, again, there's a series of events that led to, to me sort of making my way through my career or my life and where I am today. But I think there was definitely a deep passion for both technology and art that led me to sort of pursue this. Right? An engineer sitting at Microsoft doesn't aspire to just go be at Christie's or, or, or Sotheby's or, or any of the art market entities. Like that's not an inherent need. I grew up in sort of the 
suburbs of, of Bombay with 19 million of my closest sort of friends and family in a very noisy environment, but always found calm in art because my mom was an artist, but is still an artist. Um, uh, I grew up around paintings, traditional Indian art. Her friends were all artists that we went to like Sunday art class where she used to teach art to kids and stuff on a Sunday evening. So I would go like pick her up from there and I would see what she's showing. So art was always part of my, my upbringing. Uh, but as a tech nerd at heart, which I will like be not shy sharing, like I grew up around computers, right? I was always the the person sort of tinkering up and breaking a radio or starting a a, 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 a video game up on my dad's PC. Like I think Windows 4.1, uh, Prince of Persia, was many hours were spent in the 90s playing playing that video. So I was a tech slash art at heart, right? Those were the two things that I grew up on. And the tech led me to a career at Microsoft, right? I was a, I was a engineer, a product leader, a business leader at Microsoft for almost a decade and a half. Uh, built every operating system since Windows XP. My last product was Microsoft Teams, which is where I sort of got very close to the leadership and built a very, very, very interesting product, the first version of it. But at that time, something interesting was happening in the Web 2 world, right? Web 2 was catching up with the art market. So if you remember 20... 13, 2014, there was a company by the name of Artsy that was starting to build technology that was bringing the art market sort of to the web two world. And I took a leap of faith and joined Artsy at a very sort of uh, interesting point. If you, if you remember that stage of Artsy where commerce was just starting to happen, auctions was just starting to happen. Um, and I was deeply passionate about the auction world. I, I'd spent a lot of my time through Artnet databases, understanding sort of the pricing methodologies, did a whole MBA on price strategies in the art market. So I was deeply like looking to make my way into the art market through the technological lens. So I found a job at Artsy somehow and landed there and helped build the sort of commerce part of, of Artsy over four, four and a half years. That's how I sort of got into the art world, you know, um, made deep sort of roots in the art world, met Guillaume and his team through the art world. Uh, and since sort of the pandemic had been advising through the NFT world, but also through just digital transformation, been advising Christie's. That's how I landed in the Christie's ecosystem. Um, and when it came time to choose what to do in the long run, ventures was the right fit for me. You just said something that I want to follow up on. Tell me about your entry into blockchain NFTs. Uh, you know, blockchain's now been around for quite some time. We often forget that. And you're an engineer, so you could have easily become interested in it 10 years ago when the papers were first published and, and Bitcoin was launched. Or you could have only become interested in it in, you know, say 2017 when the first wave of crypto kitties and and all were sold and, and a lot of people were attracted to the melding of NFTs and digital art. Or you could have come to it through the art market, which has only really paid attention to this since about, uh, I guess, 18 months ago, maybe a little bit longer, right? Sort of November of 2020 and people being one of the sort of key uh, 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 people in all of that. Yeah, so uh, a little bit of everything. So let me just take a, a sort of step back again. So I was a cryptography PhD student at, at Columbia University back in the early parts of 2000. My advisor was Tal Malkin, who did her PhD with the likes of Silvio Michali, who is the founder of the Algorand blockchain. So I was in crypto before crypto was cool. You were in crypto before crypto was crypto. It was cryptography. I, I think since all of my conversations with Silvio, we, we still call it cryptography, right? And so I, I have learned some of the computer science aspects of it. I was a skeptic for a long time. 
I will say that for the longest time, I, especially through the ICO boom of the 2016-2017, because of the lack of regulation and having grown up at a company like Microsoft, where I'm uber conservative about missteps that can burn up a brand pretty quickly, I was pretty conservative that until the right framework exists for companies to adopt this technology, it is quite risky to adopt it at scale. So the experimentation stuff and the sort of cryptocurrency stuff I was observing, I was never an old guard like buying up thousands of Bitcoins in 2012. Of course, we all have our stories, uh, but I was understanding and learning the technology from being a, should we jump into this or not in various parts of my, my career. I, I would say in 2017, 2018 is the first time I bought some Ethereum because I wanted to see how hard it was to buy some, some Ethereum there. I still didn't buy enough to, to make a, a difference to anyone. Uh, but I, I did spend some time understanding what the challenges were in this space back in 2017. So in the first wave, if you may. And I think through the pandemic, when we all had an extra few hours in our, in our day sitting in, in front of a computer, that's when I really started 2019, 2020, started really getting interested in this space again. Let's just go over what the thesis of the fund is. It's one thing to say like, hey, you want to guide the development of technology, but you clearly have something in mind, or there's a framework within which you view these things developing that you are looking to find the right or early stage companies. The framework is quite sort of simple in that in that sense, right? Like one, it is true that we want to guide what technology is being built. So there are three sort of pillars to this. One pillar being rather than just waiting for someone to say, here is a technology, here is a solution, Christie's now go retrofit it to your, your own business. We want to be there from day one, not necessarily in the garages in the Bay Area or in, in Dallas where some of these founders are building things, but more in the ecosystem, knowing what are the right pieces of technology that are being built and then picking the ones that make sense for us and retrofitting them to our needs rather than vice versa. So that's one pillar of which we touched upon. The second pillar of this is in the past 10, 20 years of technological change, we have adopted technology, right? Like Christie's has adopted technology one way, shape or form. And that has put our 250 plus year old brand next to some of these technologies, right? And when that happens, it certainly benefits both sides. Like we're getting the tech, but the, the trust of Christie's is somehow transferring to this technology in one way, shape or form. And so I would like from the venture fund to benefit from that brand equity that we're sharing with some of these technologies. So specifically when investing, I would expect when we work with a company as they progress in their growth, their progress shadows of the venture benefits that we can get in terms of return on capital. So I think that's the second pillar of it. So shaping technology, return on capital. And I think the third sort of more intangible benefit of this being in the space is that some of the wealth that we're seeing created around us today, Marian, is from technologists, right? The decade of the 70s was maybe for infrastructure folks. The decade of the 80s and 90s was early stage technology, but now it's all technology. To take the top 10 cap by market cap companies in the S&P, they're all tech companies, right? They're not ExxonMobil. Maybe Exxon is there, so don't quote me on that. But you know, the, the, the market has shifted from infrastructure to tech being infrastructure. And as the technologists create wealth, they will have a need to buy art at scale as well. And I think that's where the, the trifecta comes into play, right? So they're building technology with us. We're getting it at a better stage than we would otherwise. We can reap a return on capital, but we're also getting collectors. But also in terms of the development of the broader art 
ecosystem isn't really the but the 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 whole infrastructure of the art market these things happen in cycles right you know we 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 build out platforms they grow there's tension between how they're operated there's you know whether it's antitrust threats or you know fraud or whatever else i mean there there are all sorts of issues those things often kind of fall apart or they build up into some kind of regulation and then there's often a collapse and then we start all over again. And, you know, the hard part about this, the reason not it's not as simple as like, oh, we'll just write some checks and get some good technology is you you never know which is the next thing. But more importantly, everything's built on the inflation and collapse of several stages. And it's being able to sort of both anticipate those things, but find whatever the next key keystone technology is that's going to help move this along. I guess that's sort of two questions, either as someone running a venture fund, what do you see what stage we're in in that? Or as someone running a venture fund, what are you looking for right now in terms of technology? No, I think let me. there's a lot of pieces in there. So let me unpack a few, few things at a time. I think the, the reason I felt that this was the right time to start a fund was was twofold. One, the correction of the crash in the space generally, not just in crypto, but overall in, in equity pricing, meant that people were a little more realistic in their expectations of what a piece of technology should cost, right? What's the market cap of a private company, right? So for us, this was a better time. Our dollar would go a long way to, 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 to do that. But then very articulately put that you said, like these are all parts of a cycle, right? Every, every web one, web two, web three, web 24 is gonna have some components of the cycle, they may change, but the innovation, growth, contention, regulation, crash cycle keeps sort of repeating itself in some way, shape or form. Having been in web one and web two in different capacities at a very cushy place at Microsoft, in a more sort of the app ecosystem is interesting and social is interesting space, in Web 2, I think Web 3, we're breaking certain order of operations. So let me just take a couple of examples. I think we've we've had, as you said, three or four waves in Web 3, right? There was a 2017 wave, there's a 2020 wave. I think the next phase is certainly going to be around sort of regulation and standardization of some of these interactions so that bigger brands and bigger companies can take part in this broader technological shift that is happening from uh, content to social media to now ownership, right? I think we've seen that written up in different ways, but it is true that a piece of content that was created in, in the 2008 social era doesn't have a clear owner. It could end up on Facebook, it could end up on Twitter. In the blockchain era, there's a clear identity management happening. So I feel that in that sense, this crash or this sort of correction has forced the regulators to really take notice. Like there's a lot of retail capital that went into this space in the last two years that now Senate and congressmen are starting to figure out what the framework for operating in this sphere is. And so from my perspective, what Christie's can do best, Christie's Ventures can do best, is really foster this dialogue, right? Like no company alone, especially a small company like Christie's is not going to solve all of these problems that we don't have experience doing that in in at scale right that we need the metas and the microsofts and the and the adobes of the world to come in and play their part along with the regulators playing their part so what we've done is things like the art and tech summit where we have a beautiful space in new york where we could bring everyone together for two days and really have these discussions seriously as opposed to just like frivolous right? I, I truly mean seriously in in the sense that you saw me operate there like i really want these discussions to have follow-ups. 
So from that summit, we're now seeing some of the top standards bodies having a monthly dialogue on how we can interrupt with each other. That call I sit on every other Friday when I'm trying to have a, a serious dialogue. If, if object A is in metaverse A, object B is in metaverse B, how do they move, move from one object? You know? So I think those fundamental things need to be solved. And same thing, while I don't sit on any regulatory calls, we are available to provide our input as regulatory bodies start making some of these decisions. I think there was a bill yesterday by the Agricultural Committee on who, who, who regulates um, some of these commodities. Uh, yeah, commodities, right? So that came out yesterday. That's a 70-page document I'm going to diligently read. And if there is a, a place to provide input, we certainly will because it has uh, implications on how we conduct business. So I think through dialogue, through collaboration, through deep investment in technological understanding, Christie's will start moving forward as not just a venture company, but a very serious player in this space, you know? So it's about having a say in standards, whether those are engineering standards, which get worked out by consortiums of, you know, interested parties or regulatory standards, which is which is somewhat, you know, um, funny considering the endless complaints about the art world being unregulated to hear someone who represents Christie saying, no, 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 we'd actually like to sort some regulation out, which only points the finger at the truth of the matter is the 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 best regulation in the art world comes through the larger entities and the easiest entities for the government at least to deal with are the two well three but primarily Christie's and Sotheby's just because it, it, so much of the art market is affected and they can actually work with people you know lawyers and people who understand how what it means to work with the the government you can't necessarily do that even with a global art gallery they just don't have the compliance staff uh, uh, to work on it let alone a small dealer who's you know struggling to put up the next show right and I think we, we understand like with that sort of great responsibility we, we also have to be uh, sort of protective of our our brand right like we, we, it is something that we've cultivated over 250 plus years. And I want to make sure that as we take some of these bolder steps, whether it be collaboration, standardization, investment, it doesn't sort of take us into a sort of tangential path that, that we can't come back from, right? So I, I was telling someone like a lot a, a hard part of my job will be to, to say no at times, like 90% of the times it won't work for us. But the 10% of the time where we can actively participate, it has to be the right thing. If the, the next Instagram is being built, would I say yes or would I laugh someone off the roof? I think my, my general take on networks is network building is quite capital intensive, right? It took Facebook, Instagram, and social networks a lot of capital to get where we are. So what we can, as Christie's help, is sort of that initial framing, right? We can't help with the scale of an Instagram going from 10 million to a billion users that requires a different type of capital. I think we can help to get to that 1 million, 2 million user mark. But beyond that, I think that we need other partners to come into the ecosystem. Well, I was going to say, uh, what you also point to there is there is a, a, a social or cultural capital that you and the Christie's brand have and your peers also share in. So it's not exclusive to you. That could have a dramatic effect far greater than than financial capital. Right. And, and I and I think that was part of your point earlier is like if you're involved with something and you're going to help it get uh, uh, recognized and be used as a standard, you also want to be invested in that so that you can sort of share in uh, the growth and help uh, uh, guide it. 
this is probably as good a point as any to talk about a little bit what we've learned from the past. I mean, you know, in the near past, we learned something very important, which nobody expected, which is that the art market can function, maybe function better in this liminal space, digital space that is as global as the art market uh, uh, is even though we all recognize there still has to be an important physical in-person uh, element to it. But what the pandemic showed is it wasn't necessarily linear, right? Uh, you know, with, with so many people have been to so many museums and art fairs it uh, and auctions, it was very easy for the art market to actually function incredibly well during the shutdown as, as a virtual, in fact, grow, like the audiences using using no new technology, right? I mean, I think the important part is it's not like, oh, the auction houses realize, hey, let's get our auctions on the web. They were, they've been on the web for 15 years uh, uh, before that. But for some reason, there was an enormous explosion of interest. I, I can only guess that it's this, this assumption that suddenly everyone was on a level playing field. There was no longer a fancy room that only some people got into. It was now everyone was on the same relationship to, to uh, that, even though the buyers remain the same, you know, uh, group, group of, of, of persons. So, so having set that up as like, hey, it's, you never really know what the thing that's going to happen. Let's go back because, I mean, the transformation of the art market has we've been talking about this and complaining about it and people always like to you know it's so antiquated it's so backwards you know people do business you know with with uh, you know they they pretend that there were like ledgers and quill pens that people were you know keeping their accounts uh, uh, in and we had a bunch of different businesses very established businesses Amazon got into art at one point eBay got into to art um you know uh, artnet somewhat remade itself uh, a, a couple of times. Uh, you guys at Artsy developed a whole thing that was very similar to, okay, we need to give people a front, uh, basically a turnkey website. If you're an art gallery, you're building your own website didn't give you a network effect, but having a um, page on Artsy, having a page at, uh, uh, I think Artnet still you know, uh, uh, does that, that gives you two things it gives you the the front end but it also gives you the network effect of get being able it's it's what an art fair is is bringing other uh, uh buyers in um so i guess the question is what do you think you know are the key pain points that people missed in that time i mean what did what did i guess the real question is what did amazon and ebay miss that they that cause them not to really have moved the needle in all of this. Yeah, I, I, having sort of spent so much time, right? Like I've been thinking about this space, not as long as you have, Marion, but have been thinking about this space for a long time. I think there are two key things that stand out. One is engagement and the other one is intent. And I'll touch both in a, in a separate way. I think in 1996, this is like back in the early internet days, Bill Gates wrote a memo called Content is King. And folks should read that memo if you haven't read that memo. It still holds true. To engage anyone online in any sort of technological way, whether it's a website, whether it's a desktop app, whether it's a mobile app, you need to engage the user, right? And the way to engage the user is content, right? The way you can, like this podcast being a case in point, like we're creating something that engages an audience to spend those very crucial eyeballs with us or 
uh, audio balls with uh, whatever you want to call it eardrums with us for an hour right 30 minutes that is one key aspect of who will be successful and differentiate or not like can you engage someone so while the pandemic level playing field everyone even us at christie's we had to reinvent the way people participate in these multi-hour auctions right we had to pass the baton from hong kong to london to new york to create these very engaging relay sales which is again a new way of doing the same thing we used to be doing but it's engaging right you're listening to three or four different auctioneers within the span. So what I'm trying to say is content will always be the king, regardless of what new technology comes in. The second is intent to your question of like, why did Amazon.sotheby's.com in the 2001 era not engage people? Or why did eBay's multi-stream auctions not engage people? I think intent comes to mind then, right? If you take Google as an example, Google captures your intent quite well when you come to commercial activation. You're searching for something, and more often than not, you're searching for something to fill a need in your life, whether it's a, a piece of content or whether it's a piece of buying furniture, right? I think when people came to Amazon in 2001, they hadn't bought a $1,000 TV, let alone, they bought like two books for $20 each in a given span of time. I think if you take the 1998 or 99 Jeff Bezos letter when the, the market crashed or 2000 letter, the average bucket size of purchases on Amazon by a user was $134. So if we put that in perspective in 2001, now you're putting a $50,000 painting in front of someone who just spent $134 on their credit card. I think what happened since then is now we've bought a Samsung television for $1,000 using Amazon. So we've gotten comfortable at higher price points. So intent was missing when they came to Amazon in 2001 to buy higher price points. So same thing applied to eBay, right? Someone who's searching for a used, used watch or a used toaster is not gonna buy a $50,000 original print. The intent is mismatched. If you, even if you put it next to them, it's not gonna be the same mindset to buy that piece at that point of time. So I think what, what changes now is A, the audience is ready, right? Because they've made higher and higher and higher price point purchase. If you take Amazon's public data these days, the price point today of a, average Amazon users annually is much higher than $134. So I think people can now be comfortable putting higher price point, higher ticket items on their credit card. And two, platforms such as Artnet and Artsy have made it clear that if you have the intent of buying art, there is a platform for it. And I think Christie's and our competitors have also created very well-established online presence. So if the intent is there, we know how to capture it. So I, I think what the past has taught us about technology, again, boils down to engagement, which relates to content and intent and why the user is coming to a certain platform. Maybe it oversimplifies it, but that's how I've looked at it for the last many years. No, look, I, th I think, again, it's about what's been built and what needs to be built. I mean, so much about the art market, you know, everyone viewed it as the problem was it was hard to buy art. But the truth of the matter is you don't need a, a one-click art purchase, right? And most people, if you're going to spend... You know, even a, a relatively inexpensive work of art is is mid four figures going up into the five figures. Most people do that. It doesn't really matter whether you write a check or send money via, uh, you know, um, a PayPal or 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 Venmo or whatever. Whatever that that's not the pain point. Uh, and and certainly serious, very uh, people who buy a lot of art often have other. Uh, advisors and and people who work with them involved in it. So the so the basket wasn't the solution. What what what's been hard for a long time has been uh, demand generation. Uh, and and I think that's again what's so interesting about 
one, first, the growth of art fairs, right? I mean, I don't think we, we, everyone's complained about them, but they haven't recognized is that they created a common context and they aggregated a very large audience. And suddenly people shared with this common knowledge of going to what, even if they didn't have the same set of fairs, it was an overlapping uh, a group of fairs. And there's some level of familiarity and that allowed them to start sort of sharing in and recognizing th things. Um, and, you know, art, I think one of the most interesting things about all these cultural products is it, it's a, it's not that different from sort of books and movies, but the value is only expressed when you see other people validate it. So in, in art, it's not just, you know, we like, I like to talk about how auctions are their own marketing, right? You know, a big successful sale it makes everyone take an artist more seriously, but the crowds at a museum show or a gallery show are the kind of social validation. And we don't yet have that in a sort of global scale. We, we've started to put some of it together. There's been a growth. Of, I mean, you know, it's taken a long time for there to be online news outlets about art and all, but even those are still relatively um, ghettoized compared to other cultural coverage and all. So it seems like, again, if past is prologue, we've reached a point where suddenly we're at the end of the beginning and we're, you know, even with the unwinding of the global macroeconomic trades that have sustained the last uh, 15 years and all, even with, with that, that actually seems like it's almost an opportunity for, for the beginning of the middle and to, to have a new sense of like, okay, how do we put these pieces together? What roles do NFTs play? What roles do these, these uh, uh, broadcast auctions? What other ways are there for people to share content, images, ideas in a way that becomes engaging and makes all of this, which is clearly important to them, cultural products, something that's more than just hanging a picture on your wall. Exactly. And I think it brings us back to the opening remarks, right? Like no one has articulated that better than these 30 minutes to some of the technology builders. Like, hey, these are the things that we've learned. These are the things we've seen. Now go build it, right? Like they, they, it doesn't just happen. So I think part of the venture story is to sort of, whether it's to keep people engaged, whether it's to build the right entry points, or to build build the right sort of tools to build trust in this market, those things haven't been articulated quite well to some of the, the early stage builders. And that's where Ventures comes in again. All right, last word. Um, we've sort of uh, hinted at it, but we haven't been explicit about it. As part of all of this, you organized Christie's Art and Text Conference this year in July of 2022. And you've already suggested you're making notes for next year. Give me a brief commercial. What do you hope to do July of 2023? Is it going to still be at Christie's um, headquarters in New York? Will it still be blockchain or Web3 focused? Or is it too early to tell? I can I can share a little bit, but a little bit too early to tell because technology in a year could look very different from where technology is today. I think given the reception and sort of support we got for this summit, we certainly will do again something next July in New York. So that's a I can I can share that today. Like there's no no doubt about in that my mind or in the leadership's mind that July in New York is becoming a a repeat telecast. Uh, we we truly think that over two days every year we would like to bring thought leaders and and people who really make the market, such as yourself and others who've been in this space, to foster that community, foster that dialogue on where are we at, what can we do next, how can we collaborate on building the next phase of solutions. And that trend in art and tech will continue. Like we will try to foster that through 
our space, our knowledge, our capital every year in, in New York. So that, that's, that's here to stay. We've gotten tremendous positive, but also constructive feedback. Everything from the air conditioning being too cold to lanyards needing printed names. We will improve next year and have a, a better uh, summit number six. Fantastic. Devan, thank you for your time. That was uh, uh, an education. And I hope if we do this again in a year that you've got many more investments under your belt. Thank you again, Marilyn. Always good to speak. Thank you for joining us at the Intelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Intelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.